0: Father, we give you thanks for your grace. We give you thanks for your love to us in Christ. We give you thanks for this Bible, the scriptures, your word, which speaks to us of this love. And we pray that you would root us by your spirit in it. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. So where, where do you place your hope in this life? If you need me to go up, I can keep going. In the back, can you hear me okay? Okay, good, we're good. Where do you place your hope? Where do you house hope? It's an important question to ask because our hearts long for something to hope in. Maybe it's the next school, or the next home, or the next job, or the spouse, or the kids, or whatever. We're always looking at something to provide some sort of answer to this problem that we have, we feel that we have in our hearts. So where do you place your hope? The Bible gives us a very clear answer to that question. It says that we ought to place our hope in the promises of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we place our hope. That's if you had to boil our work down every week, by the way, Sunday morning worship is a really important part of our Christian discipleship plan here at this church, So, and what we're trying to do every Sunday morning is root ourselves in the promises of God to us in Christ. That's our objective, that's our goal. The Psalms serve that in, the Sermon serves that in, the Sacraments serve that in. Get us more connected to Christ and His promises and seeing us live out of those promises. It's really important. And this passage of Scripture this morning gives us a picture of why it's important. And so I've got two points this morning. If, if you like to take notes, you list, these are the two kind of headings. The first thing that we're going to notice is the exhaustion of resources and life that we see going on in this passage. The exhaustion of resources and life. The second thing is the inexhaustible wisdom of God. The inexhaustible wisdom of God. Okay, so, but before we jump in here, we've got a lot of people visiting, which is great. Um, we, there's, a lot, there's a lot of lead up. So let me provide a little uh, recap. We've been in Genesis for more than a year now. And uh, so let's go back to Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel is humanity's effort to build a life, build a place. To make a name for themselves apart from God, but in the flesh, right? The the people at the Tower of Babel are relying upon their muscle, their strategic planning, uh, their technology. They're able to burn these bricks really hot and get them really strong to build way up high. They're relying on the flesh in order to make a name for themselves. And here's the thing, the very next passage, the very next story, God calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and all the world will be blessed through your descendants. So God is saying, I'm going to give you the very things that the people at Babel sought through the flesh. I'm going to give it to you through through Abraham's power. No, I mean, there's a couple of big problems. Abraham's a sojourner in a land that's not his own. He's an alien and he's going to get this land. How's it going to come by gift, by grace of God? The even bigger problem for Abraham, who's going to have this great nation, is the fact that he has no children. Abraham and Sarah could, could, were unable to have children, and now they're in their hundreds. No one in their hundreds could have children. And yet God miraculously gifts Abraham and Sarah with Isaac. And Abraham and so Isaac, Isaac has the exact same problem of infertility, praise to the Lord. And twins are granted, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob lives his life, and we've been following the life of Jacob and his sons, Joseph, and and his eleven brothers for for the last few months. We've been following their life, and you'll remember, you know, the hope of the world rests on this family, but the family's really in, in disarray. Um, the brothers of Joseph don't like Joseph, and so they. Um, the brothers of Joseph sell him off as a slave. And then he's a slave in Egypt. He's, he's wrongfully convicted of something he did not do. And so he spends more than a decade in prison. Joseph is suffering for like 20 plus years in Egypt. And then through a remarkable turn of events, he's exalted to become prime minister of the most powerful land in the world, the land of Egypt. And he has been guiding Egypt and the whole world through a famine, a severe famine, that has the whole world's population coming to Egypt to seek refuge. And, and, and the one who's dispensing that salvation in the form of food is Joseph. And guess who shows up seeking food? His brothers, his brothers who sold him off as a slave. And now they're, they're bowing before him, just like this dream promise. They're bowing before him, and he can do whatever he wants. To them. And he extends grace over the course of several chapters. He orchestrates this ruse of grace to bring reconciliation to the family. And so now the family has moved from the land of promise, with God's permission, to Egypt, the land of Goshen, and they're settled there. And so that's where we pick up the story this morning. But here's the thing the famine's getting worse, it's getting more severe. And the Egyptians, in particular, are not faring well. In the midst of the severity of this famine. So uh, let's look at verse 13. It says, now there was no food in all the land for the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. The, The land is languishing. The land is growing. It's growing weary. It's fading in its life giving power. The land is. And it's really hard for us to imagine that. Um, I think it's raining right now. Uh, we've kind of had a bit of a drought. West of us has been in drought, although they're getting a lot of when it rains it pours. they They're getting lots of rain right now. If this was like 300 years ago, we'd probably be dancing in the streets right now because of how dry it's been. And now we're getting rain. But guess what? We can go a really long time without rain. It really doesn't matter that much. The grocery stores are unaffected thanks to modern food production. So it's hard for us to imagine the psychological toll and physical toll of a real famine where there is no food. And that's the situation that the people have have been in. And, you know, when when resources are exhausted, when resources languish, when they're depleted, it makes people desperate. It cracks open the veneer of kindness that tends to mark our interactions with one another. And when people's backs are against the wall, they tend to turn inward. So you would think that in the midst of this famine, this exhaustion of of resources, that the people would be turning inward, that Joseph would be turning inward as leader through this. But what we see is that he's continuing to administer faithfully and with integrity in the midst of this ongoing crisis. Let me ask you. Have you ever been in leadership when things have gone awry? It's really difficult. Maybe you're coaching a little league team and there's an exhaustion of of wins. There's no wins, which leads to an exhaustion of team morale. And everybody's upset at each other and the parents are upset. And it's tough to lead through that. Or maybe you're a business leader and there's an exhaustion of profit. And the board is upset. The people are are upset. Right? Right? It's exhausting to work to work through that. Or maybe you're leading through uh, you lead a school and your student enrollment is declining. There's an exhaustion of student enrollment, which means an exhaustion of financial resources, which means everybody's upset. How do you keep your nerve as leader in the midst of that and not turn inward? The temptation is to turn inward as a leader, not to move towards the grumblers and the mumblers, but to turn inward. You look out for number one. That's where the flesh takes us, right? Our fallen selves want to kind of pull back from that difficulty and and serve ourselves and not serve the people that that we need to serve. So Joseph, again, he's faced with this difficult task of leading the nation that's experiencing an exhaustion of resources and things are getting really bad. The people are really starting to see rib cages and bones protrude from a whole population. Now, the question, of course, is how how can Joseph lead the nation through this with generosity and not turning inward? And there's a very simple answer. This road that Joseph is on is a road that he's been on before. A road that has been marked by the depletion of resources, the exhaustion of resources in his life. He, for 20-plus years in Egypt was learning not to lean upon the flesh, but to lean upon the promises of God. Listen to what John Calvin says. He says, the flesh might seem beautifully sufficient to itself while it strives by its own power or ascends by its own zeal or is assisted by the favor of men towards honor and wealth. That's the flesh. It seems beautifully sufficient when things are going well. However, Calvin says, it's certain that all these things that the flesh can build will come to nothing and will accomplish nothing unless the Lord prospers, unless the Lord prospers it. See, Egypt, like Babel before it, was built through muscle, power, zeal, right? The the flesh, the, the earthly power built Egypt into this great empire And for the longest time, it seems beautifully sufficient, doesn't it? When things are going well, it seems beautifully sufficient until it's not. And then all of a sudden, panic sets in. And panic for most. But remember, Joseph has been schooled in the school of suffering. Look, the hymn we sang, the song we sing, Take My Heart with Altar Fire. One of my favorite lines in the song. It's on page four. Fire of God, consume my heart and burn it down to only faith till all that's left of me is only you. That's happened to Joseph the 20 plus years in Egypt. God was burning his, Joseph was an arrogant, fleshly man. He looked good. He was handsome. He was doted on. He was favored. He had the coat. He had the dreams. He had everything. And he he leaned into that. Until it was all taken away, until he went to prison and his power is taken away. His life is taken away. Everything's taken away, stripped down to faith. So Joseph has been there. He's been he's been purged of these things. And now he's able to lean into the promises of God when the flesh comes up short in the midst of a global famine. God is teaching, has taught Joseph That the flesh comes to nothing, as Calvin says, and that we will accomplish nothing by our own talents and efforts, except as the Lord prospers. And that makes Joseph uniquely fitted to guide the world through this famine and to lead. This is how it's going to manifest itself in Joseph's leadership. Joseph is going to be leading generously. Look at verse 14. Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt And in the land of Canaan, in exchange for the grain they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Joseph is not pocketing any money. He's being a faithful steward for his boss, the Pharaoh. He's bringing everything into Pharaoh's house. He's not taking any of it. Now, you think, well, of course, he's he's obeying the boss. That's what a good manager does. They obey the boss. But how do they treat the people underneath them? If you treat the people really well above you, oftentimes that may not manifest itself in kindness towards those underneath. Well, let's look. It it explains. Look at verses uh, 15 and following. So when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph. So we're talking about the Egyptians. And they said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is gone. In uh, verse 16, Joseph answered them, give your livestock. I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. And so they bring that like, all they have left is livestock We're broke. So they bring their livestock. They bring uh, their horses, their flocks, their herds, the donkeys in exchange for food. OK, but it gets even worse. Look at verse 18. And when that year had ended, so the following year, they came, uh, they came to him. The Egyptians came to him and said, we will we will not hide from the Lord that our money is spent like we're broke. We've got nothing. The herds of the lives. we've given you our livestock. There's nothing left in the sight of, of my Lord, but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes? Both we and our land Buy us, the people say Buy our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die. And that the land may not be desolate. Right? They come to Joseph. They said, we've got nothing left. The only thing we have is the skin on our backs and our land. We've given everything to you by us. And when they say our bodies, it's, it's, it's a term that connotes weakness. Just our frail bodies. And they are volunteering themselves to enslavement. Nation of Israel, buy us, buy our land. What else can we do? Right? Now, remember, Joseph, Joseph had his brothers in a similar predicament, his people. This is the land of Egypt that's coming to him. Joseph had his brothers bowing before him, desperate, hungry, starving, at his mercy. And remember how he acted towards them? Generously, graciously. They're living in the land of Goshen. He's now got Egypt in a similar situation. How does he deal with them? They're wrapped around his fingers. He can do whatever he wants. He can exploit them if he wants. What does he do? Look at verse 20. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh and all the Egyptians sold their fields and became because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them across Egypt. Now, Let's keep reading, actually. Verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you shall sow land and at harvest you shall give fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households as food for all your little ones. Do You see what Joseph is doing? they bought them as slaves. They bought the land as their own, the land of Egypt. And now he is extending kindness and generosity to them. He's taxing them at a 20% tax rate. That's not too bad for a slave. I mean, if if that's the slave, if that's what a slave owes, the person that they're indebted to, uh, most of the world's a slave, right? I mean, 20% is not that far off the mark of a tax. 80% is yours to take care of your families, to take care of your people. We'll take 20. 20% is what we get. He's being generous. Joseph is being generous. And they, they they realize it. Now I want you to notice, Joseph is being fair and honest, both upward to Pharaoh by putting all the money in Pharaoh's house, but also as it relates to those underneath him, the, the whole nation of Egypt, being fair. And they realize it. Look at verse 25. And they said, You've saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will we will be servants to Pharaoh. And so Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have a fifth. Now, Calvin, I'm going to I'm going to read the Calvin quote again. The flesh might seem beautifully sufficient to itself when it strives by its own power. Or ascends by its own zeal or is assisted by the favor of men toward honors and wealth. Like when the flesh is working, when it's firing on all cylinders, it looks beautifully sufficient to make a life with. However, Calvin says, it's certain that all these things will come to nothing. That we will accomplish nothing unless the Lord prospers. Unless... The Lord prospers and the people of Egypt for centuries, they've been learning to operate out of the flesh and with great results. Right. I mean, we can still go to Egypt today and see the fruits of their fleshly labor. It's impressive, right? The Pyramids, the remnants of ancient Egypt. It's impressive. And they've been learning for centuries that this works. This is the way to success. But here's the problem. They don't have the promises of God. There's two ways through this world. You can operate with a Babel approach, leaning into your own strength, power, might, brains, whatever, networks. Or you can lean into the promises of God, the gospel promises found in Christ. You can receive God's grace or you can seek to achieve. Paul puts it this way. You can live by the flesh or you can live by the spirit. And here's the thing, especially when you're young, life in the flesh seems beautifully sufficient. It seems like it can work, especially if you're successful. It feels like you you can do it until, of course, a famine comes and takes everything. And then you realize there's a weakness to it. Now, I want you to see this. This is really significant. Look at Joseph's family. Look at Joseph's family. In the midst of this, God, is teach, God has been teaching. So the people of Egypt for centuries have been learning to lean into the flesh. The people of, of, of Abraham, God's people, have been learning through their pilgriming, through the land of promise. They've been learning to lean into the promises of God. We mentioned it. Isaac. How, how is Abraham and Sarah? His name means daddy. And when it's changed, it's, it's, it's great father, father of many nations, big daddy as we said but he didn't have any children he couldn't have any children it was impossible for them so he's leaning into the promise of God not into his own power and God provides Isaac also unable to have children leans into the power of God prays for children and God gives them children Isaac experiences a famine Tempted to go to the land of Egypt where he can withstand the famine. But he the Lord tells him, stay in the land of promise. And he stays there, trusting God. See, for for generations, Jacob lost his, 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 his beloved son, Jacob, and had to, I mean, Joseph. Jacob lost his son, Joseph, and had to trust in him. All of the patriarchs have been, over the course of the last 200 years, trusting, learning to trust in the promises of God. And when we do that. We learn that it's the Lord who prospers, just as Calvin said, it's the Lord who prospers and what it produces, what this kind of leaning into the promises of God produces in our lives is a supernatural, calm, resilience. Like Joseph, we can be generous as we're leading a people through the desert, right through a famine, through a wasteland. And look, look at this. Look, look at how the people of God who've been leaning into the promises of God. Look at how they fare in the midst of the severity of this famine. Look at verse twenty-seven. So Israel, the family of faith, settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And guess what? They gained possessions in it. As the Egyptians are giving away everything they have, we have nothing left. We got to enslave ourselves. The people of Israel are gaining possessions. They're getting rich in a time of famine and they're being fruitful and they're multiplying. While the the people of Egypt are living in the flesh and languishing in the midst of the famine, the people of God who have been for centuries building sheep pens as pilgrims in a land that's theirs, only it's not really theirs wandering around, they've been learning to trust in the promises of God. And when the flesh comes up short, when the famine comes, the people of God find themselves flourishing, thriving in the midst of a famine. And it's hard, it's hard to live this way, to live by faith, to trust the promises of God that this life Of Abraham, the life that we're called to as as Christians is very difficult because we oftentimes doubt whether it actually works. Can I really trust God to guide me through all this difficulty, all of these circumstances? But here what we get right here is a picture of where it ends for those who trust in the flesh, which it comes up short, and for those who trust in God and they're blessed in the end. The people of God are trusting in, the God, in God, and that's actually seen here in Jacob in the very end. You know, Jacob, Jacob is the, still the head of this family, and what we're seeing here is Jacob's faith, even at the end. Now, for a long time, we've looked at Jacob's life, and he's, he's stumbled, he's fumbled his way through, he's, he's been partial to his family, he's loved up some in his family more than he's loved others. In many ways, his life has been a bit of a wreck, train wreck. But through it all, he's leaning into the promises of God. And we see that here at the very end. Look at verse 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called Joseph and said, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. We've seen this before. This is an ancient practice. We don't know what exactly is going on here, but we can be glad that it's no longer a practice for us today. And and he, and he says, promise Joseph to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out to Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed, right, which is to say that he prostrated himself, and he he can't get all the way down to the ground, so he leans over his his bedside um, in an act of humility. Jacob says, Promise me, Joseph, that you will bury me in the land of my fathers. And this is, this is commitment to the promises of God, right? Land. Jacob, is, Jacob has seen the generosity of Egypt. He's seen kind of its, its success. And he said, it would be very tempting for him to say, we could make a life here. This place is kind of nice. Even though it's a famine, I could tell him the good times. It's a great place. But he doesn't say that. He stays focused on the promises of God. Take us back. This is where God has us now. But the land of promise is where we are called to be. Promise me, Joseph, you will bury me there with my fathers. It's a, it's a stamp of Jacob's faith. It's a, it's a fruit of Jacob's faith in the promises of God at the end. Now, the re- you might ask, well, how can I trust? The promises of God, how can I how can I trust them? And there's many reasons why you can. But one reason that I want to mention today that I I believe we find in this text. Is that the promises of God are designed by the eternal counsel of God's will. They're designed by the inexhaustible wisdom of God, which is our second point. So and this is a briefer point that we're going to make here. The inexhaustible wisdom of God are what are it are what bring forth the promises of God. St. Augustine, in his confessions, talks about I could I tried to look it up this week. I could not find it. Trust me, it's there. It's somewhere in there. He says, you know, when, when he went to read the Bible, he was kind of disappointed. It looked a little bare bones. It looked a little archaic. It looked a little Hebraic, like a little simple. Kind of like shepherds wrote it compared to like the writings of Cicero, this grand, verbose, uh, you know, rhetoric. He looked at the Bible and he was like, oh, it's kind of simple. It's kind of basic. But then as you begin to spend time in the scriptures, you, you realize that there is this depth of wisdom there. And hey, as we've been reading Genesis, I've been feeling that every week. I hope you've seen it. As we spent uh, well over a year now in the book of Genesis, that for all of its simplicity and its ancientness, there is loads of wisdom here. Every week as I'm preparing these sermons, I've got like five or six directions, avenues to pursue. And you have to kind of settle in on one. It's just so rich, this book. And so, so let's, let's just consider some of the wisdom here. Let's zoom out just a bit. Let's zoom out and see what's going on. The Pharaoh in this famine has been trusting in the word of the Lord. Did you know that the Pharaoh has been following the word of God? Because Joseph, there is no, this hasn't been recorded at this point in time. Moses would record it in 400 years. So God is speaking through dreams. Pharaoh's having dreams. God is speaking to Pharaoh through dreams. And Joseph is communicating as a prophet to Pharaoh, the word of the Lord. And what does the Pharaoh do? He heeds Joseph's word. He heeds the word of the Lord to him. And he follows Joseph's lead. And guess what? The people of Israel are blessed. The nation of Egypt is blessed as a result of the Pharaoh following the word of the Lord. In 400 years, the Pharaoh will not follow the word of the Lord. Moses will tell the Pharaoh, The Lord says, Let my people go. Remember what Pharaoh does? stubbornly refuses to. And what happens? The Pharaoh is not blessed like he is here. He's blessed in a time of famine, thanks to Joseph, but he's cursed. He's, he, he drowns in the Red Sea. This Drowning for the Egyptians, that was the worst way to die. It was a curse. And that's what comes on Pharaoh for refusing the word of the Lord. So you see how this the scriptures are, are communicating like from book to book. Through all of these stories, it's the, it's the wisdom of God. So that's kind of zooming out. We see it. But let's zoom in. Let's get, let's get more granular. And I, I need to be really cautious here. Uh, you, you start looking at numbers and you can, it can get really crazy really quick. And let me say this. The chapter verse designations in here are not inspired. They were, they were done a few hundred years ago. As I recall from seminary, in one case, there was a guy on horseback traveling from one town to another. And he was doing the chapter verse designations as he was making that trip. Right. Multitasking. So the chapter, we don't want to make a big deal out of it. But 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 when there are ages and numbers of time spent in places, there may be some significance to that. And there is here. Look look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt how many years? 17 years. He's there for 17 years. And you know what? This is a perfect balance to Joseph's time in the land of promise. 17 years. Joseph lived his first 17 years under Jacob's care in the land of promise. And Jacob lives his last 17 years under Joseph's care in the land of Egypt. It's like perfect balance balance perfect symmetry and then we learn look at look at uh the next line there in verse 28 so the days of Jacob the years of his life were 147 years right Jacob lives 147 years he's the shortest lived of the patriarchs Isaac lived 180 years Jacob's father and, and Abraham lived 175 years. Those are just kind of random numbers, right? We have a slide. Can you advance that, Chris? Look at this. This is interesting. If you factor the ages, look at what happens. Abraham, the, 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 the granddaddy of them all, the factors that go into 175 are 5 times 5 times 7. The factors that go into one eighty six times six times five, Jacob one forty five seven times seven times three. You, you decrease those first two numbers, and, and then you inc- and then I'm sorry, you decrease them by one, and then you decrease the others by two, and they all total seventeen. What in the world? What's going on there? I don't know. I I, I don't know. I think you know that we we also saying when we've been there for ten thousand years. In 10,000 years, maybe it will become clear what exactly that all means. Maybe somebody's figured out what it means. I don't know. But here's, here's what I do want to say. This is what I know it says. Nahum Sarna, a Jewish commentator on the book of Genesis, says this. In this series, the squared number increases by one each time, while the coefficient decreases by two. Furthermore, in each case, the sum of the factors is 17, the number, which is interesting. We just read that number, and that number actually has significance. 17, through their factorial patterns, the patriarchal chronologies constitute a rhetorical device expressing the profound biblical conviction that Israel's formative age was not a series of haphazard incidents, but a series of events ordered. According to God's grand design. This is what it points to. God is architecting their lives. God is architecting our lives. There is is purpose. There's there's some sort of order to it. It may be beyond our grasp now. But there is order. And at some point we'll see it. That, That God's inexhaustible wisdom is driving this story. It's not just driving the story that we just looked at, the story of Genesis. It's driving all of the scriptures. And his inexhaustible wisdom is put on full display as he leads this family of faith forward, Judah's line in particular, and brings into the world himself, lives his majority of his adult life a carpenter, and winds up being crucified on a tree. A tree of death. Remember what was lost at the garden? The tree of life. We we, we rebelled against God. We ate the fruit. Humanity was expelled from the garden. Blocked from the tree of life. So now we're susceptible to, to spiritual death. We're susceptible to physical death. And what did God in Christ do? He came into this world. He poured himself out. And he died on a tree of death. Flipping it. And making it a tree of life for the world to find its salvation. This is the wisdom of God. And Paul says, Paul says, if God didn't withhold his one and only son, how much more will he give us all things? Right. How much more will he give us all things? Your life, if you're in Christ, God is designing your life with his love and care and attention to detail. And that's the promise. If if we're living life from like a worm's perch, and by the way, everything around us encourages us to kind of take a worm's eye view, a worm's perch. We're just, we're embedded. It's very hard to see how God is working. But if we let the Scriptures sort of lift us out of the earth and get get a heaven perspective, God is designing your life with precision and care. And he is. And so I'll come back to the question I started with. Where is your hope? Where do you house hope? The passage is telling us you can place your hope in the flesh, but it will every time come up short. It will lead to famine in your life, or you can trust the promises of God. and You will prosper even in the midst of a famine. Let's pray. Our father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your promises in Christ that we are gentiles most of us are recipients of your love and we thank you that your spirit has awakened us to that if if there are those there that do not bully they're just checking this whole thing out maybe they're here for because a friend brought them who knows but if there's some here that have not turned to you to trust in your promises they're operating out of the flesh pray that you would speak to them during this time We thank you for your word. Continue to shape us as we worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.